and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, hello, everybody. It's so good to see you. Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. We're back in 1 Peter 3 tonight. And as you turn there, have you heard about that bus load of politicians who were driving down a country road when the bus ran off the road and it crashed into a tree in an old farmer's field? The old farmer, after seeing what happened, went over to investigate. A few days later, the local sheriff came out looking for the missing politicos saw the crashed bus, and asked the farmer where all the politicians had gone. The farmer said, I buried them all, out back. The sheriff then asked, were they all dead? The farmer replied, well, some of them said they weren't, but you know how them politicians lie. (laughs) Unfortunately, we laugh easily at that because it's too often true. But one thing we can count on when we read the Bible is being told the truth. Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. Amen? And his word tells us the truth. The Bible says God cannot lie, and we can count on God to tell us the truth. Back in the Old Testament days, 50 days after the Passover, the people received the law from Mount Sinai amidst flames of fire. Doing what the law said would make the Israelites a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a witness to the entire world. The people accepted the terms of what we now call the Old Covenant. Well, we know that Jesus died for our sins on the Jewish day of Passover. Fifty days later, on the day of Pentecost, the very first Christians received the Holy Spirit amidst flames of fire, 50 days after his resurrection from the dead, and that made them able to speak languages they didn't know, drawing people together. Peter then preached to the gathered crowd in one language, and we're told that 3,000 people were saved and baptized that very day, And the New Covenant Church has been growing ever since as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation within the nations. So on the Old Testament day of Pentecost, it celebrates the receiving of the law and being a kingdom of priests that were to present that law, live it, and present it to the world. And we are now recipients of the New Testament, the New Covenant of salvation in the name of Jesus, having been forgiven of our sins, Christians from all backgrounds, then go on to be a kingdom of priests. We're a holy nation within the nations. So since that time, every time a person is born again, they are spiritually baptized in the body of Christ, into the body of Christ. That means the Holy Spirit takes up residence in their heart, and then they get baptized in water as a public testimony of their salvation. So the public act of water baptism is a testifying act of the spiritual thing that's already happened to us when we were saved. So to me and the Word of God, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what Ephesians 1 says, having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and that's your guarantee of your future inheritance. In John 7, Jesus at the final day of a great feast, you know, said, the one who believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. John 7, 38 and verse 39, John says, 
Writing about that, he says, This he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in Jesus were later going to receive. And then he said, The Spirit had not been given yet, because Jesus had not been glorified yet. So, uh, once a person turns to Christ in salvation, and they're forgiven of their sins, they're born again, the Holy Spirit baptizes them. The Holy Spirit takes up a residence in their heart, goes from being outside of them to being inside of them. And then they have the Holy Spirit with them the rest of their days. It's the guarantee, the down payment of their inheritance. Now, last time in 1 Peter, we entered the final section where Peter encourages believers amidst the suffering they were enduring. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, Peter had told them, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than suffering for doing evil. And then he immediately goes into how the suffering Jesus endured for us brought about the ultimate good, salvation for all who are in Christ. So hopefully by now you've turned to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 18 through 22. It reads, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, few people, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. I want to talk to you about the ark of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for these great verses. I thank you so much, Jesus, that you suffered and died so that we could be blessed and live. We don't deserve it. We can only receive it as a free gift. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We just have to receive it as a free gift. And more than the transaction of salvation and forgiveness of sins, we're really receiving you and eternal life, as John 17 says. As you said in John 17, eternal life is to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so, Lord, thank you for the privilege of eternal life in you, eternal life with you, eternal life because of you, eternal life in relationship with you, God. And Lord, I thank you that just as when Noah and his family went in the ark, they were spared when the judgment came, sealed inside it safely. Thank you for all those that turn to you in salvation, are baptized by the Holy Spirit, and they are sealed up in the ark of your love. They are in Christ, that wonderful New Testament phrase that pictures the same thing for us. Being in Christ for us means judgment won't affect us. Being in the ark for Noah's generation, his, the eight that went in, he and his uh, family, meant that they would be, uh, wouldn't be judged like the nations were being judged there because they were safely in the ark. And, Christians are safely in Christ. We think of those old judgment waters rising in the days of Noah, and all it did was push the boat up. It didn't submerge the boat. And we thank you for how physical water baptism is a picture of that salvation, that just as Noah was lifted up out of the waters of judgment because he was in Christ, we're trusting you alone to lift us up out of the judgment that's coming. Lord, I think about how when we trust the preacher to actually 
uh, bury us with Christ under the, bat, under the waters, <laughs> uh, so to speak. We're trusting you. We trust that preacher to lift us up out of the waters and save us, Lord. And we're trusting you to save us eternally out of, those, out of the judgment, Lord. Thank you for the picture that water baptism is of our salvation. Our trust in you brings it and baptism pictures it, God. And I pray that uh, you will bless this time of looking at Jesus Christ, the ark of our salvation. It's in your sweet name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Now, I want you to know this is one of the most difficult passages to exegete and understand in the New Testament, which is funny because in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter says there are some things in the scriptures Paul wrote that are hard to understand. Now, I'm going to tackle those tough things, but first let me caution you not to get away from me when I bring it back to the beautiful encouragement found here. And the first encouragement found here is in verse 18 that Christ died for sinners. It says Christ suffered for sins, but not for his own. For your sins, for my sins is who he suffered for. It says Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The only righteous one who ever lived died in the place of the unrighteous ones, guilty sinners like you and me. As one Christian in jail said, we did the crime, but he did the time. <laughs> we call this the substitutionary atonement. We deserve punishment. He took that punishment on himself. Oh, I love the hymn, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That Thou My God Should Die For Me? Charles Wesley. I love the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me, John Newton. I love how Matthew Henry wrote, He that knew no sin suffered instead of those who knew no righteousness. <laughs> That's us. No goodness inherent in us. No righteousness in our own selves, but overflowing righteousness in Christ. And his righteousness counts for the believer. Uh, not a little portion of it, 100% of it counts for the believer when they turn to Christ. He died once for all. That's why on the cross he said, it is finished. Well, what was finished? All it would take to save sinners from hell and bring them to heaven. God's riches at Christ's expense. Why did he do this? Well, the middle part of the verse tells us, to bring us to God. No one can get to God in heaven except through Jesus. Amen? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Acts 4.12, another verse every Christian ought to memorize is, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. So if you'll provide the sinner, he'll provide the Savior. He himself is the Savior. But if you reject him, you will continue on the highway to hell that you're already on. So Christ died for sinners, verse 18, the first part. But the second part of verse 18, down through the first, uh, second part of verse 20, says, it says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Hoo-wee! Man, we have some tough verses here. Let's stay humble, but let's get after it. The second part of verse 18 says that after he was put to death in the fleshly realm, he was made alive in the spiritual realm. Well, Peter is clearly saying that Jesus did actually die. There are those who say Jesus just appeared to die or was just a phantom. Nope, Jesus had a body and the body was dead and the body was buried. But Jesus' spirit was alive even though it wasn't in his body. Now that's no surprise because that's what happens to people when they physically die. We bury the body but the spirit lives on. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
Now, look at the back of your notes. I've got some things on there to help understand verses 19 to 20, and I need to define some terms. So before Jesus' death and resurrection, the domain of all dead spirits was called Sheol. Uh, Sheol is the way of Hebrew way of saying it, or Hades, the Greek way of saying it. And those are the ways they come into English from Hebrew and Greek is what I should say. Sheol, Old Testament, Hades, New Testament, same place. Uh, uh, let me uh, just real quick turn and read Psalm, Psalm 49, verses 14 and 15. Psalm 49 says, Like sheep they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Well, it says grave there, but the word is Sheol, the place of the dead. This should not be confused with the final place lost people and Satan and his demons will be, the lake of fire. When people talk about hell, they're talking about the lake of fire, not Sheol or Hades. Uh, that's the place referred to in Revelation 20, 10 through 15. And uh, it says that actually there come a time where what's left in Hades will be dumped into the uh, lake of fire after the great white throne judgment. So there won't be any temporary place of holding the dead after the great white throne judgment. Matthew 25, 41 says this eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. So nobody needed to go there. Everybody that doesn't know Christ is going there already because they're lost in their sin. Uh, but nobody needs to go there because of what Jesus has done. And that's the point of our uh, passage for today. So Sheol Hades uh, appears to have been divided into two parts with a gulf between them, a place where unbelievers already received some level of torment and a place where believers received much comfort. The believing side has been referred to as paradise or Abraham's bosom. You, you know, we, uh, Jesus gave rich man and Lazarus story in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. And in there, he actually pictures a chasm between uh, a man named Lazarus being comforted and a rich man, sometimes called dives, because that's the Latin for all that, um, being tormented. And they can't, they're aware of each other. They're physically aware of the one experiencing torment. He's aware of his torment. The other one's aware of his, already, his comfort that's already started. So they're somehow in sight of each other. Uh, and there's a chasm between them that can't be crossed and uh, they have unalterable circumstances. They can't come back to this life. That's where they are. Now, we don't want to confuse Hades of the Old Testament, Sheol with the New, with a place the Bible says some demons are now being confined. This is called the abyss uh, in Revelation 9 and Tartarus in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And maybe it corresponds to that gulf or chasm spoken of in Luke 16. So the body was dead for Old Testament believers and unbelievers alike, but their spirits were either uh, in, in some sort of temporary spiritual spirit world body were uh, on either the comfort side of the chasm or the already temporary torment side of the chasm. Uh, thus Jesus' statement to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, we believe that between Jesus' death and resurrection, his spirit went to that place. That's what's being said here, right? He went and preached to the spirits in prison. Uh, so between Jesus' death and resurrection, his spirit went there. Revelation 1.18 boldly declares that Jesus is alive and has the keys to death and Hades. So, uh, you know, his, uh, you know, when he resurrected, he, uh, when he died on the cross for the sins, he purchased those keys. He had them with him as he rose from the dead. Perhaps Jesus made proclamation to the lost there 
that they would continue to be bound there until the great white throne judgment. Um, after the great white throne judgment, Sheol or Hades itself will be emptied into the lake of fire, which the Bible calls the second death being thrown into the lake of fire, the permanent dwelling of those, the devil, the demons, and those who uh, were on the way to hell and did not turn to Christ to not go there. In these New Testament days, uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So as his bodily resurrection was about to happen, Jesus led the righteous from paradise to heaven. And we see in Matthew 27 talk of the graves being opened, you know, and uh, coming and walking in Jerusalem and then not being visible anymore. Pretty cool to think of not only Jesus rising to life, but also Old Testament saints and getting to go on up to glory that day before Jesus was seen by his disciples. Ephesians 4 says that he led captivity captive. He, uh, you know, so no believer now resides in Sheol, Hades. It was the temporary uh, place for all the dead uh, before Christ's death and resurrection. But since his death and resurrection, it only holds those who don't know the Lord and will one day be judged at the great white throne ju judgment and then be put in the lake of fire. Well, you say, wait, oh, wait, wait a second, Danny. Um, so Jesus preached, what was his message? Well, to those who had denied God and rejected God, he said, your condemnation is just. There's, you, haven't, you, you didn't ask uh, for a substitute. You don't get one. Uh, you will have to give an account for your sins, and hell will be as bad as you made it through your sinful and wicked deeds. The message to the righteous would have been, come with me, fellas. Uh, we're going to heaven now. And that is so cool to think about. You know, uh, think about it like this. Um, Old Testament saints had faith in God and his promises. Abraham anticipated a sacrifice being made for uh, Isaac, a, a replacement being there for Isaac, and there was one. And Old Testament saints believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness. They were looking forward to what Messiah would do. So in the Old Testament, people were looking forward to the Messiah suffering on the cross like Isaiah 53 prophesied and like Job 19. Job seems to have some recognition of, I know my Redeemer lives and will stand on the earth at the last and I'll see him in my body. You know, that kind of promise was he clung on to. Um, but uh, the penalty needed to be paid. So. Um, that's what Jesus did on the cross. He said, it is finished. The penalty has been paid. Now, those that were on God's layaway program, the Old Testament saints, since the penalty's been paid, we can now bring the saints home. And uh, so powerful to think about. Well, in the New Testament times, we look back on what Jesus has already done, so there's no need to delay somewhere in a kind of a holding tank of grave uh, for our spirits. We get to go right not to Sheol, but we get to go right to the presence of the Lord and be with God in heaven. And of course, in there, we're assuming that there must be some kind of transition body now the saints have in heaven, that uh, when e e Enoch and Elijah were raptured up to heaven, uh, they um, you know, were in that kind of body. We assume that when Jesus says in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that as he works on that city, the New Jerusalem, he's still in his resurrection body that he brought back to heaven and that all saints that are um, with him uh, are also getting to be busy about the work of the Lord and preparing the new Jerusalem for the saints. Well, let's hope we can get, keep, stay on track here. Uh, Jesus was actively working between his death and resurrection. So sometimes we call the Saturday Silent Saturday, but in reality, Jesus was emptying Sheol of all believers during that time. 
uh, and uh, transporting them to heaven before he did his and re-entered his body, and it was a resurrected body. Um, so it says, in that state, he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient. The word for proclamation there is not the word for preaching, as in preaching to get somebody to repent and be saved. That can only happen before death. The word here is more like herald, letting people know how it is through proclamation. So is Peter talking about demons or all lost people before the new covenant? Well, we, we don't know, but we do know that usually the word for spirits used here is of demons, but there's one big exception that relates to this, Hebrews 12, 23, which speaks of the spirits of the righteous people being made perfect, which is pretty cool. I think Peter himself was speaking to both groups because he does that again in 2 Peter. Uh, so let's just look quickly at 2 Peter chapter 2. Chapter Peter, chap, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, if I can keep my tongue from getting tied. <laughs> Verse 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the world. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Well, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Oh my goodness, that's good stuff. Well, and it corresponds to what we just talked about. So, Jesus died for sinners. Jesus uh, did that great work. He was actively working between his death and resurrection. And in verses 21 and 22 here in First Peter, we also see that Jesus rose triumphantly and is alive and in charge. There's your fill in the blank, in charge. Some of you probably already wrote in the word heaven, but the word is in charge. He rose triumphantly, is alive and is in charge. Verse 21 and 22 says, There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Well, verse 21 says that our faith is worth committing to because Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 22 says he's gone into heaven and angels, authorities, and powers are subject to him. Now think about something with me. When Jesus was going to the cross, he said if he wanted to, he could call 10,000 angels to assist him. I wonder if that's because there were 10,000 demons to harass him. What if at the moment of his death, they grabbed his dead body spirit and started bringing it down to Hades? What if that's when his spirit came alive and threw those demons off, grabbed the keys to Hades, made his glorious proclamation, opened up the paradise side of it, and did what Ephesians 4 said. He led captivity captive, led them on high. Does that make anyone want to shout, glory, glory? Does that make anyone want to sing victory in Jesus? Oh yeah, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me before I ever knew him and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory, just like baptism pictures. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. See, they thought they had him, but he is victorious over them all and they are subject to him forever. 
awaiting their final sentencing in the great white throne judgment. No matter how many individual battles Satan wins, he has lost the war. And that's because of our ark of our salvation. And just that's what we want to look at that phrase in verses 20 and 21, how Jesus is our ark. Let me just read that part of this again. Um, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. This is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ark of our salvation. It's interesting that some see it to say baptism now saves you and think the physical act of baptism saves a person when the text clearly says the opposite of that. Uh, it says baptism the, the, the act doesn't save you, not the washing of, uh, you know, of dirt off of your physical body. Um, see, a lot of religions have some kind of holy bath you're supposed to take. You immediately think about the Hindus that go down to the Ganges River and bathe in <laughs> what they call holy water. Sure looks dirty to me. But uh, any picture of washing and being washed is really communicated in the spiritual realm in the New Testament, that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And um, that baptism is more a picture of a funeral service. You know, the water going under it is supposed to picture our death, that we are dead underneath that water. And we're, we've drowned. Uh, we're drowning, you know. And when Noah and his family, if they hadn't gotten in the ark, they would have drowned like everybody else in judgment. But because they were in the ark, they were preserved from that moment of judgment. So that's why we say, like Romans 6 talks about, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. We are identifying with Christ's death. That's our death. The old sinful man, dead on the cross with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20 says. And we're basically expressing through the act of baptism, physical act of baptism, what we believe has happened spiritually. That just as we trust the preacher to lift us up out of the water, we're trusting Christ to lift us out of the final judgment. And just as Noah and his family were preserved in the ark, we are preserved in Christ. Mm. Now, you know that I believe every believer ought to be baptized. I, I, I find it a distasteful discussion that because there are those out there that say, if you're not baptized, you're not saved, uh, we have to say, no, that's not quite how the scripture teaches it. Uh, Catholics teach that when the baby is sprinkled in baptism, and what they call baptism, not baptism at all according to the scriptures, but when the infant's sprinkled, they're freed from original sin. Uh, and so they teach a form of baptismal regeneration. Uh, and so do those that say at the moment of physical baptism, that's when you're saved, trusting in that act, uh, in that act. Um, they teach a baptismal regeneration. The scripture teaches it as an ordinance, a command we obey, not as a sacrament like the Catholics believe uh, or a regenerative act act, physical act, like uh, some Church of Christ folks believe. Um, we don't take it that way, but it's unfortunate that we get into these discussions because every good Baptist believes that everybody that's trust Christ ought to be immersed as a believer. And, um, you know, it corresponds in some ways with the old ancient uh, wedding ceremonies and rites uh, around the, the time that uh, Christ came along. You know, that when uh, you know, um, Mary was engaged to Joseph. Uh, we, we view it as engaged. It was betrothed. And um, the scriptures make clear that it was in their law was as good as if they were married, but the actual act of marriage and the consummation still needed to come. 
And when a Christian believes in Christ, they're betrothed to Christ, they're his. And of course, we want to uh, follow through on the betrothal with the wedding ceremony, the coming out ceremony of the couple. And at baptism, you're testifying that it's kind of like a funeral service. You're testifying that you're trusting Christ alone to save you and get you beyond death to heaven. It's also a baby dedication. You're saying, hey, I'm a new Christian. Church helped me grow. I'm one of you now. Uh, but it's also like a wedding ceremony. When Elizabeth Lookout and I got married, we put on wedding rings and we exchanged vows and we became man and wife. And uh, from that day to this, uh, we've had an exclusive relationship, room for no others within our relationship. And when you take the decisive step to be baptized before others, you do that publicly, you do it humbly. You're trusting Christ alone for salvation and telling everybody you are. And from that day forward, um, you are to follow Christ uh, and he is your God. And everyone knows it. It's kind of like your wedding ceremony. Around the world, relatives will tolerate their loved ones talking a little bit about having turned to Christ, but it's when the baptism happens that they start to be persecuted. And so uh, we need to think very seriously about every believer should be baptized. Pastor Peter brilliantly teaches that here. Um, think about the flood waters in Noah's day. And again, they represented judgment and death on all who would not repent and get in the ark. But the offer of forgiveness was offered to all who would repent and get in the ark. Only eight took God up on his offer. Noah, Mrs. Noah, their three sons, and their three daughters-in-law. They sealed themselves in the ark, and when judgment came, they were secure in the ark and lifted above the water. So when Peter says in verse 21, baptism corresponds to this, not the physical act that wipes some filth off the flesh, but the repentance and faith behind the physical act that give us the conscience that we are the Lord's and the Lord's is ours. Romans 6 makes clear being baptized by immersion represents a commitment to being buried with Christ only to be raised to newness of life. When you get baptized, you're acknowledging your sins deserve judgment and death, the kind represented by going under the water. Just as Noah was in the ark and lifted securely to life out of the flood, the believers testifying that now they are in Christ and trusting him alone to lift them up in salvation and into a new life. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's why Peter uses the word pledge toward God. Just like I mentioned with the marriage vows, the pledge that Elizabeth the vows that we spoke before God. That she was the only one for me and she said I was the only one for her. So when you get baptized, you're pledging you're in Christ, relying on him alone for your salvation from the judgment due sins. And you want the world to know what's happened to you. I hope you understood all that when you got baptized. Many children and teenagers don't, and they have a crisis of conscience and faith later on. And, uh, you know, um, we, we often say that if you didn't understand what you were doing, uh, then, then you didn't have the full significance of the event. And for some people, to alleviate the conscience, they'll want to be baptized again now that they do understand, really baptized for the first time, because the first time they uh, maybe truly didn't understand uh, the faith, and now they do. The early church embraced the ark as a visual symbol of being in Christ, ready for judgment. Are you ready for judgment? Are you in Christ? The early church would sometimes draw a boat in the sand to represent the ark, a boat on cave walls and things like that, and down in the you know places that they'd worship and in the houses, and when they'd meet with one another, they you know of course would do other symbols, but the ark was one of them. 
to represent being in Christ. And it's really interesting, the times you're reading in the letters of the New Testament, how that concept of being in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved, like uh, Noah was in the ark, becomes so dear to the believers. Uh, and we just, uh, being in Christ is another way of saying that you've been born again, that you are in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You are ready for judgment. And I hope that's true of you. If not, turn to Christ now. Confess that, your need, that you need him, that you're a sinner, that you've rejected him. Confess that he, you understand he died on the cross in your place, took the judgment due you on himself. And turn to him in faith and ask him to save you. Admit you're a sinner. Acknowledge your need of him. Believe in God's provision in Christ and what he did for you there on the cross. And commit your heart and life to him. If that represents where you're at right now, say a prayer in the quietness of your heart now directly to the Lord. A prayer like this. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner and you are right to judge my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for taking that judgment on yourself at the cross. I believe, I believe that you did that for me and that I needed to have that done for me. Forgive me of my sin, Lord. Come into my heart and life. I receive you and I want to follow you. And indeed, I pledge to follow you all of my days. Show me what that looks like in these days ahead, including your plan for me to be baptized. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Hey, if we can be, to help, be of help to you spiritually, call us, email us, and we'll look forward to talking to you here at the Tabernacle. God bless you. Thank you for listening to The Tabernacle today. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.